Well, I love that song. It's just uh, one of my favorite worship songs, reminding myself what is true but doesn't always feel true in a self-sufficient kind of uh, world we live in, that we need God. We need his guidance. We need his direction. We need his kingdom in our life. And we've been looking at the wilderness of temptation, how much we need God as we face temptation specifically. Think of those words of Jesus, you know, deliver us from evil, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We have found ourselves following the prophet Balaam, this ancient witch doctor who's been hijacked or hired rather by King Balak to come and curse the Israelites. And, and they've been down in the valley. They're totally unaware that there's this battle going on up here for their blessing and curse. And God has been protecting his people unbeknownst to them by what he's been doing in the life of Balaam. So Balaam was asked to curse them. Then he was asked to just curse a small group of them. Then he was asked to at least stay neutral, don't bless them. And Oracle 1, Oracle 2, Oracle 3, we've now made it to Oracle 4 in Balaam's life. And God comes upon him, God takes over his mouth, and he speaks prophetic blessing over them, predictions about the Messiah over them, predictions about world history over them. And when you read this chapter, you're going to say, oh my goodness, this is a follower of Yahweh. This guy is converted. This guy is repentant. This person is in line with God. Because everything on the outside looks like it's just looking great. What's coming out of Balaam. And yet what we're going to find out today is God supersedes his own brokenness. But Balaam is just putting on an act. He wants that diviner's fee more than ever. He is going to conspire to find a way to get access to that, as we'll see next week. So though he's putting on an act and God is superseding his own brokenness to deliver this powerful prophecy, he's as broken as ever. But you don't really see that in the chapter we're studying today in Numbers 24 and 25. You actually have to jump forward a couple chapters, kind of a biblical commentary that shows us what was happening back in the chapter we're in today. So here's our first biblical commentary coming out of Numbers 31. It says, now look, it looked like he was blessing Israel, but right afterwards he turns to King Balak and tells them to send some prostitutes down that way so they'll curse themselves. Look, these women, these Moabite prostitutes of King Balak, caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident at Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, the word is very interesting uses here for trespass. There's two different words in Hebrew for trespass. One word he, he could have used was a pesha. That's like you've broken the rule, you've broken the commandment, you, you've gone the wrong way, you've done the wrong thing. But instead, he uses the word ma'al which speaks to something more emotive, more relational. You violated God's trust. My people violated my trust. And I want you to think about that in the context of temptation today. The temptation is not just trespassing some arbitrary ethic or guideline or set of rules of do's and don'ts. But rather, I want you to think about trespassing with this definition. When you go where you shouldn't go, even though you know it hurts someone you say you love. 
Because I've never seen a rule that said, do not step on the grass. I didn't want to go over and just step on the grass. It's just a rule. I'm going to find a way around it. But if it's a violation of trust of someone I love and care about, that puts it in a whole other category. And so as we encounter Balaam today, I want you to remember that though it's going to look good on the outside, it's actually not really what's happening on the inside. And that's our definition of, of this passage here today is that temptation is ultimately a violation of trust. And trust is demonstrated in how you act, not by putting on an act. If you really trust someone, you will obey them. You will act a certain way because you trust them. However, you cannot trust somebody, and you can put on an act that looks really good for a, for a while, but eventually it comes out. There's a second biblical commentary on this passage in the book of Micah. Remember, Micah is probably famous for his prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem, a little among the nations. He also mentions Balaam. Micah says, oh, my people, I want you to learn something from Balaam back in Numbers. Remember how King Balak, the king of the Moabite, counseled him? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? It's like he gave him the idea of sending the prostitutes down to Israel. From the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you shall know the righteousness of the Lord. By studying this passage, you're going to know something about the righteousness of the Lord, he says, Micah does. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High God? So he's talking to them about how we align ourselves to God, how we trust him and how we act. What does it look like to act that out? And he, he uses Balaam as an example of not putting on an act like he did, but rather acting out your belief in God from a genuine place in your heart. He, he, he expa explains that in the next part of Micah, another very famous verse. He says, guys, do you think God wants you to come to him with burnt offerings, with calves that are a year old? Will the Lord be pleased if you brought a thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn to cover my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, you know, all these sacrifices, all these things, if they're just putting on an act of religious activity, they don't come up from a place of genuineness genuine alignment with God and understanding you broke his heart, a desire to please the one who made you pleasing. God doesn't want any of it if it's all just putting on an act, which is why his conclusion is a famous verse of Micah, Micah 6.8. He says, God doesn't want you putting on an act like Balaam did. He has shown you what he wants, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but that you do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You want to know what God wants from you? There it is. A genuine place of trust that because I trust him, I'm going to do justly. I'm going to love mercifully and walk humbly before my God. He would far rather have that than a bunch of pretentious religious liturgy and ritual. Even stuff prescribed by his own book. So today we're going to look at Balaam, but I want you to keep in mind these commentaries that tell us what's really going on, because it's not easy to see. And we're going to look at three stages of, of temptation he goes through, that we all go through. And really my hope is that you will begin to see trespassing, sinning, and temptation 
Not that I break God's law, though it's true. But instead, I want you to see it as I broke God's heart. The God who died for me, the God who loved me, the God who pursued me, the God who accepts me. And I violated his trust and I broke his heart. So let's pick up Balaam in uh, his fourth oracles. We look at this first stage together. So the first stage, we're just going to observe what happens and see what we can extract from it. Notice as God is speaking through Balaam what he says. So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of the Lord and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. So notice the utterance, the utterance, the utterance. What he's telling other people is what he's telling himself. And what is he telling himself? When you hear from me, you're talking to somebody whose eyes are wide open. My eyes are wide open. I am hearing and I am seeing exactly what God wants me to see and hear. Now, at one level, that's true. He's going to have supernatural vision to see the next 1,500 years of history. On the other hand... Based on what we just read in Micah and what we just read in Numbers 31, the guy is the opposite of got his eyes open. He thinks he's blessing God when he's really going after the diviner's feet. He thinks he's doing the right thing, but we all know he's actually conspiring in the back of his mind how to set up Israel for a fail with the Moabite prostitutes. So the utterances he tells himself is, I am wide open, ears open to what the Almighty God says. But it's all just an act. A story he's telling himself because he's really got far different motivations. His public self and his private self are way, way out of alignment. And this can happen to Balaam, it can happen to you and I. And that's the first stage of temptation. I tell myself and I tell others a story, an utterance. And I've told it for so long that I start to think it's true. Oh, I'm open to God. I'm wide open. Eyes, I see exactly what God wants from me. I am obeying God. I'm a good Christian. I came to the 8.30 service for crying out loud. Who gets up at 8.30 and comes to church? Except for Christians, super Christians like me. And we begin to believe our outward spiritual activity. Rather than looking at, man, I give in to temptation and lust and unkindness. I prioritize things besides God. And we begin to tell ourselves stories. And this is how temptation always happens. You, you give yourself an utterance, you believe that utterance, and it just walks you into the fire. As a pastor, we get kind of a front row seat to seeing people who've fallen into the, the pit and kind of the, the messages, the utterances, the stories they told themselves that got them there. The whole time they thought their eyes were wide open. <laughs> but their eyes were closed. Here's just a few things I wrote down of things people tell themselves. What utterances do I tell myself and others? One is, poor me. I can't tell you how many people have ended up in deep temptation and consequences because they said, poor me, I shouldn't have to put up with this. 
God is holding out on me. I shouldn't have to put up with not being appreciated by my spouse or whatever it is. And that just becomes the beginning of a path that leads to destruction. Or we begin to say, I know God says don't go down that path, but I've been, I've been kind of weighing out the pros and cons. And it looks like God's path looks like more cons and less pros. And temptation looks like it's got some cons. Thank you, God, for the cons. But I think the pros outweigh that thing. Other times we tell ourselves, well, listen, I've been going down God's path. And quite frankly, I shouldn't have to put up with this. Forgiving, being patient, forget it. I shouldn't have to put up with this. That's the utterance we tell ourselves. I deserve better than what God's giving me. I deserve better than what life's giving me. And you know what? I don't think God would really mind. Well, he says he'll mind in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but for me, because of all the things I've done and because of my unique circumstance, I don't think God will mind if I go down that path a little bit. Because I won't get hurt. And this is the only way I'm going to get my needs met anyway. If I don't power up, no one's going to know I'm in charge. If I don't get angry... If I don't kind of dabble into this area, if I don't fudge the numbers in my direction, no one else is acknowledging it. These are just all the utterances we tell ourselves, and we think our eyes are wide open, but we're telling ourselves a story that leads us into temptation. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of uh, Wayne Huizinga. His dad started this massive company called Waste Management and then Blockbuster and a few others. And he just loved his dad. His dad was a leader's leader and was generous to other people, had private planes, and he grew up with all of it. He said, I just tried everything. He said, in trying everything in my life, I got to the point that I had no boundaries. I would say whatever I wanted to whoever I wanted or to them or to their wife, and, and I just kind of spit it out because I didn't have to care about anybody. One day I get a phone call, Wayne says, and a buddy of mine said, hey, we got an opportunity to go on a three-day trip on a nuclear submarine. He's like, I'm there. We'll take my private plane. So he and his buddies fly down to South Carolina. They get into a, uh, a nuclear submarine under the captain. And for three days, they travel down toward Florida. He said he was just amazed as a person who saw leadership, saw himself as a leader's leader because of where he grew up and the access he had and the money he had. But now he's around a guy who had a very different leadership style, Captain McDonald. And he noticed this guy is underwater with 120 men for six months at a time. This is a leader. And after those three days, they became friends and they began to trade times on his fishing boats and interacting with Captain McDonald. And every time he'd say, can I ask you, like, you seem to have a peace I don't have. You seem to have a a connection that I don't have, and men respect you, but indifferently than the other kind of leaders I've been used to. And Captain McDonald would always pull out his Bible and say, because I've got my own commander. And the commander I have controls the universe, but he also is humble and kind and cares about other people. He says, you think your eyes are wide open to what really matters. You're really, really happy, but you're discontent because you're trying to fulfill your longings with something temporal when only a relationship with God will do it. And that friendship and that interaction opened his eyes that the story he'd been telling himself about what brings happiness and what brings contentment and what role God does or doesn't play got changed because of a commander, a captain, who spoke about his relationship with God and Jesus. And he became a follower of Jesus. If smart people like Balaam, smart people like Wayne, 
can tell themselves a story that's not true, then shouldn't you and I presume we do the same? Well, now we get to this utterance, and this utterance is pretty amazing. It gets us to the second stage, but we'll unpack that after we figure out what he's saying. So remember, God is speaking through him despite his bad motivations that we find out later. Here's what happens at stage two. I see the vision, the vision of the Almighty. I see him. Now notice, interesting, it's a vision of seeing God, but as he sees God, he sees a him. We see both this, he sees something divine, but also a him, a person. And here we have the, this introduction from a pagan prophet that God is going to bring a God-man to earth. He's a vision of the Almighty, but there's a him. But what I'm seeing, Balaam says, it's not for right now, but I behold him. There's a person that God has in store here related to the blessing of Israel. But this vision is not near. It's like way in the future, about 1,500 years. It's a star is going to come out of Jacob. Now, maybe that is recognizable to you. This is a prophecy made in the book of Genesis and several other places. That's Jacob's descendant. A star will rise and the Messiah will come out of Jacob versus Jacob and Esau. So of the 50%, it would come from Jacob. So here and now is a prophecy from not just God in Genesis, but now a pagan prophet who God is saying, there's a Messiah coming from Israel and from all the different lines of him from Jacob. A scepter, a leader will rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. Now Moab, which is just to the, if you're on a map, it's just to the east of the Jordan River, will eventually be the place that the Babylonian Empire takes over and Assyrian Empire takes over. And eventually, I think most of these prophecies, not just the first coming, but the second coming, that one day Jesus will come and he'll take over all the land again, all the old Roman Empire and Babylonian Empire and Greek Empire. But keep in mind that Moab kind of ties into Babylon. We'll come back to that. And destroy all the sons of tumult. This is probably second coming type stuff. And Edom shall be a possession. Now, Edom is also just to the east side of the Dead Sea. The Edomites, they were called. And the Edomites, for the most part, have been eliminated from history. But one of the last Edomites, the Greeks used to call them Idumen, Idumen. So Edomites, the Greeks called them the Idumens. And do you know who one of the last remaining Idumens was? King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great, who tries to kill off Jesus when he's born... That the Edomite empire that has been utterly destroyed, but one of the last remaining people of the Edomites, or Idomen, as the Greeks called it, was King Herod. And that whole empire will become a possession. His enemies shall become a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion. There's this kingdom that's going to come, this different type of kingdom that will over overcome the kingdoms of the world. It's going to destroy the remains of the city. You think about all the ways in which King Herod builds this massive temple in Jerusalem and the Romans in 70 AD come through and utterly destroy that thing as Jesus predicts. Then he looked on Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but he shall be last until he perishes. So who are the Amalekites? 
Way back in, I think it's Exodus, the Amalekites did a surprise attack on the Israelites. And it was a pretty ruthless attack. They attacked them, and they came from the rear, and they attacked the poor, the elderly, and the stragglers. And this was such an abomination when it came even to the ethics of war that you would take on the innocent and the weak, that God said, the Amalekites have no dignity, they have no care, they have no value of human life, and therefore their kingdom is going to be destroyed because of the way in which they have not valued life. So that's why the Amalekites are here. And he's going to be destroyed by this new type of kingdom. And he looked on the Kenites and he took up his oracle and said, firm is your dwelling place. You think your, your nest is in the rock. You think no one's going to get to you. No one can find you. You're not safe. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Asher carries you away in captive? And Asher is kind of the ancient name for what becomes the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire is the one that comes and captures the, remember which one's with, the southern king, no, northern kingdom gets conquered Right before the Babylonian exile, the Assyrians come in and conquer that whole territory in the north. So all of this stuff written in 1500 B.C. is predicting what's going to happen through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, and then even some references to the Greeks and Babylonians there with Moab kind of hinted at. Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus. These are the nations from the west which again probably was the Greek Empire coming through with Alexander the Great, and they shall afflict Assyria, afflict Eber, and so shall Amalek until he perishes. So some of this stuff happened in history, predicted by Balaam. Some of this is still to come in future history at the second coming. But just amazing. But notice two things are in there. Number one, he tells us about this forgiver, right? A God who's going to send a Messiah who forgives, who champions, who brings a whole other kingdom. The other portion of this is a whole lot of judgment and perishing and like, wow, that sounds devastating. And often people want to dilute one or the other. God loves you so much, he doesn't care about what you do wrong. Or God talks about everything you do wrong, but my goodness, you don't hear much about forgiveness. The second stage of temptation is understanding you need both. You need to understand what is right and what is wrong and how wrong the wrongness is so you can better appreciate how big God's forgiveness is. It's a stage two of temptation. I tell myself it's not a big deal. I mean, after we just read that prophecy, does it sound like the evil and wrongdoing of humankind is not a big deal? Man, it sounds like God's gonna have to bring some perishing and some judgment and some serious consequences. But we don't do that. When we head down temptation, we say, well, what we do, it's not a big deal. I'm not gonna hurt anybody, come on. But when we minimize the seriousness of rebellion, we tiptoe into it. And when you minimize rebellion, you minimize the power of forgiveness. It's like this. I haven't shared this story publicly very often, but I used to eat at Arby's. <laughs> often. And, and they had this sandwich that came out when I was in my 20s. It was called the, the Big Montana Combo. The thing was massive. And my kids were young at the time, and they'd say, Dad, there's no way you can eat that. Why? Because they had a small mouth, and they couldn't eat that. I'm like, no, you don't think I can eat that. You think I need a smaller hamburger. You don't realize Dad has a big mouth, right? And so I would take this big Montana combo, like two-handed eat, and I'd be like, oh. And the kids' eyes were just mesmerized. Oh, my goodness, who knew that Dad had such a big mouth? I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I chomp my way through this whole big Montana combo. 
And I think for many of us, we think that, well, God can't forgive me. God's mouth's not big enough to chomp down on that thing. So we minimize sin. It's not as bad as you think. We minimize his ability to forgive us in our own life. And God's like, no, it doesn't matter how big it is. And sin is much bigger than you realize. And rebellion is much more serious than you realize. But as you realize the consequences of all of your sins and all of your trespasses and all of your wrongdoing, I also want you to see my big mouth. Where sin increases, grace increases even more. God can forgive, and that Messiah that comes out of Jacob can forgive and eat whatever temptations, whatever rebellion that we come across. Don't minimize either one, either the rebellion, how serious it is, or the good news that God came to forgive you. See, you don't understand the good news until you realize how bad the bad news really is. So practically, what are ways in which maybe you've been doing this, telling yourself it's a big deal? You've been minimizing maybe the rebellion side of it, or you've been, on the other side, you say, no, I realize how bad I am, how terrible I've done things. I just don't think God can forgive me for what I've done. I beat myself over this. I'll never forgive myself for this, Right? Well, then you've minimized forgiveness. There is a a scepter, there is a leader, there is a kingdom that's come out of Jacob that can chomp away whatever it is that you've done. Don't minimize rebellion, but don't minimize forgiveness either. The third stage. So what happens here in the third stage? The third stage of rebellion is I tell myself a story so long I start to believe it. Then I tell myself, it's not that big a deal, because rebellion's not that big a deal. And now I find myself kind of sinking deeper and deeper into a certain habit or a certain secret. I begin to have a duplicitous between who I say I am and who I pretend to be. And, and now because there's that duplicitousness, and I don't want to confess, because I don't want to admit it's that big of a deal, I begin to instead put on an act for God, for myself, and for others. And in putting on an act, I begin to return to my old ways, and I invite temptation into my life. This is fascinating what it says here. Balaam, after this big, long speech, which sounds very godly and it's filled with all kinds of godly things, it's just been putting on an act. So Balaam arose, he departed, and he returned to his place, his witch-doctoring place that he was called from by King Balak. And here's exactly how temptation works. First, we return to our old habits. We return to our old playgrounds. We go to those old places, those old things that were wayward with God. Balak also went his way. Now, Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and they began to commit harlotry. Remember I told you it would be like, totally like where did this come from? Like, how's, Why is suddenly we go from a great prophecy to their committing harlotry? Numbers 31 tells us that somewhere in between there, Balaam turned to Balak and said, I know how you can get them to curse themselves. You got some good-looking prostitutes here. Send them down. You return to your place. They began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. Because every time you align yourself with temptation, you're aligning yourself to an idol. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. You've made something besides God the real functional God in your life. It might be comfort, it might be pleasure, it might be power, but something has become the real God in your life. You pretend, you, I pretend that God's God in my life, but the real God is pleasure or comfort or power or honor. So they invite, right, it's not temptation works, you invite temptation into your life, 
you end up joining, bowing down before that temptation, right? It becomes the thing that calls the shots in your life. And then you end up joining yourself to bail to other idols in your life. That's how temptation works. You return, then you begin to commit, you invite it into your life, you bow down to it, and you eventually get joined to it. And the anger of the Lord was aroused. Why is the anger of the Lord aroused? We'll talk more about this next week. Because trust and trespassing is a violation of trust. God says, we are in covenant together, and you're cheating on me. You're cheating on me with another God. You're literally cheating on your own spouses with these prostitutes, but it's a sign of spiritually how you're cheating on me by aligning yourself with Baal, not the God who brought you out of Egypt. How about in your life? Have you found yourself in these stages? I have. Like, quarterly, monthly, I'll see these stages work out. I return to some old habit. I begin to commit gossip, impatience, intolerance, judgment, fill in the blank. I invite more of that into my life because I'm getting the benefits of it, the superiority of it, the whatever. I then bow down before it. I start aligning myself around that habit, and then it begins to rule my life. How do we deal with temptation? Martin Luther used to say that temptation is like birds. They're always going to be flying around you, but you can at least keep them from building a nest in your hair. Isn't that pretty good? Here's how he says it. It's from Martin Luther. Since temptation is always joining yourself to another god, another idol, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You can't keep the devil from suggesting thoughts to you, but you can choose not to dwell or act on them. And I think that's why returning to your old habits, a lot of times we think we're smart enough to overcome temptation, right? All the temptations have taken down pharaohs and kings and CEOs and leaders all through history. We're smart enough to not let it happen to us. We're strong enough. To, we can dabble in it without it taking us down. Reminds me when, when we took the kids to the beach when they were real young, the seagulls were there. You remember the first time you, you did the seagull thing? You sense learned? And so we had made these sandwiches. We're having a little picnic there. And uh, Beth and I made uh, peanut butter and jelly. And I had a turkey sandwich. And, and, and so we're eating that thing. And then we got a little bit of bread left over. And we see a couple seagulls. Like, come on, guys. See our Jim, come over. And so we grab the bread. And we're starting to throw the bread up in the air, right? <laughs> here comes all the seagulls, right? And they're dropping a few other surprises for us. And you're like, whoa, okay. Like, that's right. You know, I can avoid that. And we're just going to feed those things. So we're kind of playing around with the birds, right? Playing around with the birds. And, and having a great time. And pretty soon, what was one bird turns into two birds, turns into 100 birds. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. I mean, there's like birds everywhere. They're trying to kill you. And, and as we're kind of dabbling with the birds, thinking we can control the birds, thinking they're just going to do what we want them to do, all of a sudden it feels like somebody comes up behind me and goes, wham, against my hand. And poof, a giant bird smacks my left hand, knocking my half sandwich out of my hand, grabs it in midair, looks at me, <laughs> and flies off with my sandwich in his hand. Hey, hey, my sandwich. I didn't want you to take that. And that's what happens with temptation. You dabble a little bit. You just want to feed a few of them, and it grows and grows and grows. And pretty soon, it takes away the things you never intended it to take away. Your faith. Your future. Your family. There goes my innocence. That's the time I lost my 
seared my conscience. All because along the way we didn't realize you can't outsmart temptation. You can just flee from it. It's interesting that these prophecies were about Moab and how Moab will be destroyed, but God brings redemption to Moab. It's a little woman in Moab named Ruth who marries a family, Naomi's family, who had moved from Bethlehem. Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, moved from Moab back to Bethlehem. And through a Moabite, right, the rebellion, the sinners, the bad people, she marries a man from Bethlehem named Boaz, and they have a child. And the last chapter of the book of Ruth says that from a Moabite, God brought a descendant of David and Jesse and eventually King Jesus, all from Moab. So even if you have rebelled, lost your sandwich, lost your integrity, lost your reputation, or you just feel that putting on an act divide in your life, God can do to you what he did in Moab. He can lead you from Moab to Bethlehem. And from Bethlehem, he can redeem your pain. He's your kinsman redeemer to buy you out of bondage and to promise future forgiveness to you. And through Jesus, you can have that forgiveness now. Whatever you've done and wherever you've been, that's what God offers. But to do that, we've got to come clean and we've got to be honest. We go back to that definition we began with. Temptation is a violation of trust. You want to know what you really trust? Look at how you act. Not how you pr pretend to come across. Not your public self. Your private self. See, trust is always demonstrated in how you act privately. Not by putting on an act publicly. The question is not, is your public self and your private self out of alignment? The answer is, of course they are. In what ways are they currently out of sync? And how can you confess that or agree to God with that so he can put them back in sync? Remember we began with the word trespass? I said, I want you to think about trespassing not just as breaking a rule, but I want you to think about trespassing as breaking or violating someone's trust. I want you to imagine that God is here today in a very safe place, and he says, guys, I want you to know, I love you. I made you. And your secrets that you've been hiding from yourself, hiding from your family, hiding from your company, you have not hidden them from me. So here's what I want to invite you to do. God says, I want to invite you to stop putting on an act, but to come clean. Come clean with the stories you've been telling yourself that aren't true. Come clean with the, the way in which you told yourself it wasn't a big deal and you're finding out it is a big deal. Come clean to me that you've been returning to old habits and old patterns and what you pretend to be and who you are out of sync. And if you will do that, if you will stop pretending and stop putting on an act, you will find that I can eat up that rebellion, those secrets and habits, but it begins 
by you coming out into the light. During this next song, I just want you to pray and ask God, maybe his Holy Spirit to speak to you at ways in which you want to confess that your public self and your private self are not in alignment. Father, we thank you for your grace. God, we admit we come before you as trespassers. And Father, many of us, all of us, have secrets and rationalizations and justifications that we've been carrying and we're worn out from carrying water for our own public images. We invite you to speak to us even now.